Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey guys, Aaron Barker, Artistic Director of the Story Collider here. Before we get started with today's episode, Metamorphosis, I want to tell you guys about a metamorphosis the Story Collider is going through. This week on Tuesday, September 5th, the Story Collider will celebrate its first show at its new home in New York. Caveat. Caveat is a place where science is funny, history comes with a beer, and ideas meet art for a memorable night out. We invite you to join us this Tuesday to celebrate its grand opening with science stories from comedians Mike Kaplan and Justin Williams, Scientific Americans Michael Lemonick, climate scientist Kate Marvel, and drunk scientist Shannon O'Dell. It's going to be a great time. You can find out more about Caveat and the other great shows you'll be able to find there at caveat.nyc. A science story, huh? Is NYU scientist a... And I it felt, felt I feel right. I was so and I just happy. Thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I feel it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi guys, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm Erin Barker, Artistic Director of the Story Collider, still filling in for Ben Lilly this week. So this week we're bringing you two stories about drastic transformations, from one scientist's journey through Berlin in the 1980s to another facing challenges at home. Our first story this week is from Nadia Singh. It was recorded in June 2017 at Motorco Music Hall in Durham, North Carolina. The show was produced in partnership with the NC State Leadership in Public Science Cluster and the Duke Initiative for Science and Society, with support from the Burroughs Welcome Fund, the NC Science Festival, the NC State College of Sciences, and the NC State College of Humanities and Social Sciences. The theme that night was New Frontiers. Uh, so when I was in grad school, the dean of the School of Earth Sciences was this woman called Pam Matson, And she told this story about how her six-year-old daughter came home from school one day and said, how come you don't make brownies like all the other moms? And for me, it was a really powerful and poignant example of the struggle we all face trying to balance our personal and professional lives. I decided that I was never going to be that mom. I actually decided I was never gonna have children because I didn't wanna compromise my professional career. A few years into my marriage, when I was a postdoc, my husband and I got into a massive argument. He accused me of being too ambitious and of working too hard. He wanted kids. We were at a crossroads. It was divorce or children. I loved my husband. 
and I loved our marriage. And so I agreed to have kids. I went off birth control, and a few months later, I was pregnant. My cycle had been so bizarre because I'd been on birth control for so long that I didn't know I was pregnant. It didn't even occur to me that I might be pregnant. I had some irregular bleeding, and so I went to a clinic just to get checked out to make sure that I was okay. And the doctor checked me out, and he left the room, ran some tests, and he came back, and he said, congratulations, you're pregnant. I burst out crying. The doctor told me that was not the normal reaction. <laughs> and I told him he was an asshole. <laughs> Matt, my husband, was in Cambodia at the time doing field work, and I knew he would be thrilled. I just didn't want to tell him over the phone. And so I decided to wait until he came home to tell him in person. About a week or so later, I was at work, it was a Friday, and I started to bleed more heavily. Matt was still in the field. I had walked to work that day, so I didn't have my car. And so I went to my friend Brian's office, who was a dad already, and I told him what was happening. He drove me to the emergency room. And they took me back, and a man came in and did an ultrasound. And then he left, and he pulled the curtain closed. And he had this very hushed conversation in the hallway with a woman. And then the woman came back, and she did an ultrasound. And then she left. A third person came back and told me uh, that I had miscarried. She said I should follow up with my doctor on Monday and that she was sorry. And she asked me if I would like some apple juice. <laughs> Brian drove me home and I took a scaldingly hot bath and I drank the better part of a bottle of white wine. Matt called me the next day from Cambodia and I told him that I had miscarried. He hadn't even known I was pregnant. I followed up with my doctor on Monday, and she didn't think I had miscarried at all. She thought I was still pregnant. I'm sorry, what? Like, it didn't even compute, right? She thought it was too early to see anything on the ultrasound. And so what she wanted to do was draw blood every couple days and track my hormone levels. And if the levels were increasing at the correct rate, I hadn't miscarried at all. It turns out, she was right. I was still pregnant. I was shocked. And I was relieved. And then I was shocked that I was relieved. <laughs> I started going to the obstetrician every two weeks for a checkup and an ultrasound. Matt would come with me to all the appointments. At six weeks, we heard the heartbeat. <laughs> deafening. At eight weeks, we saw the heartbeat on the monitor. It looks like a, like a light flickering really, really fast. And that, for me, is the moment my pregnancy became real. I had a heart, like a beating heart, that wasn't my own inside of me. At 10 weeks, I went in for a now routine ultrasound. It was so boring at this point, Matt didn't even come with me. It was a Friday, right? Of course, a Friday. And the ultrasound technician, she couldn't keep a poker face. There was something wrong. But she couldn't tell me what it was. I called the doctor and left a message saying I wanted to know the results. The doctor called back that evening. Matt and I were having dinner at Chili's for some reason. <laughs> Sorry, it's true. <laughs> I wanted the doctor to tell me the results, but he said he couldn't. He had to tell me in person. I could see him on Monday in his office. You know, protocol. I don't know what I said, but he caved. The embryo is not viable, he said. You've miscarried. 
I ordered a beer, and I haven't been back to Chili's since. When you miscarry, one of two things happens. One, your body realizes that the pregnancy is no longer viable, and it will rid itself of the pregnancy-associated tissue. In other cases, your body never figures out that it's not, the pregnancy isn't viable, and it will continue to invest in the pregnancy. So the embryo isn't growing, but everything else still is. In that case, you have to have surgery to remove the embryonic and placental tissue. Matt and I waited for a couple weeks, hoping my body would wise up, but it never did. So surgery it was. The procedure is called a DNE. It's for dilation and evacuation. They dilate your cervix and they evacuate your uterus. To warm me up for the surgery, they had me take a drug called Pitocin, which induces labor. And what that really means is that before you even go in for surgery, you've expelled all of the tissue and all the doctors really have to do is go in and clean you up. This drug is not taken orally. For maximum effectiveness, it's delivered straight to the source. And then you wait. And before you know it, you've gone from zero to full-on labor in about 60 seconds. It's excruciating. And it's horrifying. I spent the night before my surgery in our bathroom, moaning and weeping and expelling about 12 weeks worth of pregnancy. Being a scientist, I saved some of the tissue and took it with me to the surgery. I wanted them to karyotype it. I knew that there was a genetic explanation for my miscarriage. Some chromosomal abnormality made the fetus not viable. I wanted to know which one. I wanted an explanation for the miscarriage. They looked at me like I was crazy. We don't do that here, ma'am. Like, why not? You would learn so much about the genetic basis of miscarriage if you just did this with every spontaneous abortion that comes in here. Like More crazy looks, right? I asked if there was a private company that I could send it to to run that kind of diagnostic. I don't think so, ma'am. It's not your typical request. I had my DNA on December 31st, 2008. It was New Year's Eve. Matt and I rang in the new year, watching movies in bed. Matt bought a Mylar balloon and wrote, fuck you, 2008, <laughs> in purple Sharpie on it. And then, then I got pissed. For as long as I can remember, I have not responded well to being told what to do. If you tell me what to do, I will do the opposite, just to spite you. I used to not wear my seatbelt because the law told me I had to, and I don't need the law telling me what to do with this body. So do you think I'd just sit back and let the universe tell me I couldn't have kids? That I would listen to my body when it told me no? Hell no. I was gonna have kids, damn it. And I wasn't gonna the universe or my body or anyone or anything get in my way. I got pregnant with a vengeance. And I vowed to be the best goddamn pregnant person and the best goddamn mother in the history of the world. I exercised. I took my prenatal vitamins. I even wore my seatbelt. The problem was that I sucked at being a patient, right? I had so many questions about the science, about the statistics for my doctors, and they never had any answers. And they didn't like me because of it. When you're pregnant, they screen you for gestational diabetes, right? Uh, the first test, 
the first screen is very error prone, and if you fail the first test, they make you do a more second, a second more accurate test. I failed the first test because, of course. And so I asked my doctor, well, what's the error rate on this first test? Oh, it's high. That's why we have a second test. Yeah, I, I got that, actually. Like, but what is high? Like, I want to know how high is high. What does high mean to you? Is it 5%? Is it 10%? Is it 30%? How high is the false positive rate? I wanted to know. She had no idea. If anyone wants to know, it's actually 15%. I looked it up. Early in my second trimester, we went to the anatomy scan. That's where you can start to see the skeletal development of the fetus. The 4D ultrasound technology is totally mind-boggling. The things you can see are incredible. So I remember the articulation of the spine coming up on the monitor, and Matt and I both just gasped audibly. We saw the four chambers of the heart starting to develop. We took a picture and sent it to my brother, who's a cardiologist. You can see all kinds of things with this imaging. You can see, for instance, that this thing you've affectionately been referring to as sprout actually looks more like Skeletor. <laughs> you can also see the sex of the fetus. And the ultrasound technician asked us if we wanted to know if we were having a boy or a girl. And we said, no, we didn't want to know. The truth of the matter is that I come from a long line of difficult relationships between mothers and daughters. And I didn't want to have a girl. I didn't want to perpetuate the cycle of dysfunction. And I knew that if they told me I was having a girl at that moment, I would spend the rest of my pregnancy being anxious about meeting my soon-to-be daughter. But if they told me when she was born, I would just be so excited that she was there, I wouldn't care that she was a girl. And that's exactly what happened. When Isabella was born, I was so happy that she was healthy and that she was out of me <laughs> that I didn't care that she was a girl. I wish, I wish I could tell you what it was like to see her for the first time or to touch her for the first time, but the truth is I don't actually remember. I have like, flashes of memories. I remember meeting Matt's misty eyes with my own and exchanging the silent look of, we did it. I remember swelling with pride when I got to introduce my daughter to my father, who had showed up at the hospital when I was in labor. I remember the nurses placing Izzy on my chest and thinking how tiny she was. And I remember holding her, this tiny, sleeping, swaddled bundle, and knowing, like, really knowing, that everything was going to be fine. I was not going to fuck this up. I have two daughters now. Nikki is three, and Izzy is six. And as divorced from science as my three pregnancies felt, my life now is inextricably linked with science. I'm a professor of biology. The students and faculty and staff at my home institution see me as a scientist. They see me as a researcher, as a teacher, as an editor as a leader, as a member of the scientific community. But they also see me as a person. They see me as a mother. They've seen my kids at seminars, in my class, in the hallways, in my office. I like to think that it's a good thing for some of our students and staff and faculty to see a successful person who is defined by more than just their career. For Mother's Day last year, the school made a video of our kids answering questions about us. 
and they asked Nikki, my three-year-old, what my job is. She said, her job is to keep me safe. (laughs) If you ask Izzy the same question, she'll say that I study flies. They're both right. They see me as the scientist who goes to work every morning and the mother who snuggles them at night. As for me, I still have aspirations of being dean someday. I still strive to make breakthroughs in science, to innovate, to educate, to integrate research with training and teaching. I still try to think creatively about how to foster crosstalk between scientists and the public. And I try to be a role model for my daughters. Try to teach them to work hard and play hard, to be kind and to be grateful, to respect themselves and to respect others, and to laugh and to love. And I teach them how to make brownies. We make a lot of brownies in my house. Thank you. That was Nadia Singh. Nadia Singh is an associate professor of biological sciences at North Carolina State University and an associate professor of biology at the University of Oregon. She earned her PhD in biological sciences at Stanford University and her research focuses on the genetics of evolution. Our second story today is from Kennery Webb. It was recorded in April 2017 at the EO Lounge in the Ronald Reagan Building in Washington, D.C. The show is produced in partnership with the Earth Optimism Summit. It is 1989, and I am a 16-year-old exchange student from the U.S., and I have just walked up to the Berlin Wall for the first time. My hands trace the giant graffiti letters in front of me that say, Weg mit der Mauer, get rid of the wall. But that wall is so solid, it is hard concrete. Behind me, I go up on a viewing platform so I can see to the other side. On the western side is just a green um, park that goes right up to the edge of the colorful wall. But on the other side, there is just this desolate no man's land. And the wall on the other side has not a speck of graffiti. It is all gray. There are soldiers patrolling with orders to shoot to kill. And I am horrified. So the reason I'm in Berlin is that I have this amazing opportunity Um, to go with my host sister's class on a rare trip into East Germany. So we've had, the class has had the history explained to us about how Germany was divided after World War II into four occupied zones, including Berlin, which was in the Soviet section. But then millions of refugees were flooding out of the East Bloc, so they closed the border, and then they built a wall around West Berlin, creating an island within East Germany. And one of the only ways through that wall is called Checkpoint Charlie. So all the students, we line up there, and we are getting ready (laughs) to go through, and you wend your way down to this kind of steel box where the doors close on both sides. And then this soldier examines my paperwork, and he's looking through my passport, and he's just glaring at me. 
And I think he's taking, he's just taking so long that I think there is no way he is gonna let me through. But finally, with one last glare, he stamps me into the country. And I emerge into a foreign world. It turns out that it isn't just the other side of the wall that is colorless. It feels like all of East Germany is gray. The buildings are covered in coal soot. The only two types of cars just come in muted colors. And even the clothing just is drab. But over the coming days, as we get to know people, I realize that the bleakest part of the landscape is people's souls. People tell us about their despair and their hopelessness. And then they ask us for ballpoint pens because those don't occur there. The whole situation feels completely absurd to me. And then one night we stay in a youth hostel and there's an East German uh, class staying there as well. And we end up staying up late into the night hearing their stories. And in hushed voices, they tell us their hopes and dreams. One young man in particular, Michael, seems to develop a little bit of a crush on me, especially when he finds out that I'm from New Mexico and I even ride horses on mesa tops. He has somehow acquired a poster of the American Southwest and he wants nothing more in life than to be able to see those beautiful, stark, wild, open spaces. But he knows that that is impossible that never in his lifetime will he be able to travel, and that he can be punished even for wanting that. That night, I begin to know my freedom in a way I had never even come close to before. A few days later, we meet up with Mikhail again, um, and the designated meeting place turns out to be this giant communist square. So my host sister and I show up, and there's thousands of people in the square, and we think there is no possible way that we are going to find him. But then suddenly he emerges out of the crowd, and we're just like, how did you find us? He says, it was easy. No one in East Germany wears purple. <laughs> so that was May of 1989. In July, I returned to New Mexico. Shortly after arriving, I sit my father down at the kitchen table, and I tell him, Dad, we have to do something. There is a wall <laughs> to keep people in. This is not OK. <laughs> my father just kind of laughs at me and kind of holds up his hands, and he says, well, you know, <laughs> I don't think that there's anything we can do and I'm quite sure that nothing is ever going to change. And you know, it's really kind of complicated. But to my 16-year-old brain, it does not seem complicated at all. It seems totally clear and simple. The wall is wrong, and my friend Michael is on the other side. So Michael and I are writing letters to each other. And each one takes about a month to get through. Um, but, you know, I have to tell him that I'm actually in love with someone else, but he's fine with that. And we um, enjoy having a friendship that um, crosses this terrible divide. Initially, his letters are just filled with more despair. But then, in September, he starts to write about political unrest and protests. And then his letters start to have hope creeping in. But still, 
in November on the 9th when the evening news says the East Germans can now cross the border. We are all in total shock and delight. So Michael and I joined the world in just elation. That Christmas, I return to visit my host family in Germany, in West Germany, and then I go to Berlin for New Year's. On the 31st, I arrive, I drop my bags, I hop on a train, head to the wall, I get off at the last stop, and from afar, it is the noise coming from the wall. You just couldn't believe it. It was like fireworks exploding and popping of champagne corks and laughter and delight. And as you got closer and closer, it got louder and louder until suddenly there I am on the wall. And this time it is totally different. I slap my hands on the wall. And then a moment later, I get boosted up onto the top of the wall with hundreds of other people. It's been cleared off. And I look down on the eastern side and there are these soldiers looking up at us, clearly having not a clue what to do. All along the wall, people are using hammers to break off souvenirs. But shortly, we all begin to feel that, you know, this isn't, just isn't enough. And so the barricades, these metal barricades, get kind of ripped apart and become makeshift sledgehammers. And then we just start bashing away at the wall. And in our section, we take turns. And after a while, we have a hole big enough that we can peer through and we can greet the guard on the other side who just looks back bewildered at us. And then after a while, we have a hole big enough that I reach through and I grab four East Germans who have ventured across the death zone. And they step through. And then a group of us take them on their first tour of the West and in one neon lit bar, I remember West Germans competing with each other and buying them colorful cocktails and kissing their stunned faces. And the next day, I just stride over the remains of the wall and get on a train to go vis visit Michael, to go surprise him. There are no phones, so I can't warn him. But I just show up at that afternoon at his door and start knocking on it. And from all around me, behind curtains, are these wary eyes watching me. But when Mikhail opens the door, he is elated. And then, six months later, Mikhail returns the surprise, and I come home one day in New Mexico and find him delightedly swinging in my hammock. <laughs> so we have re remained friends over the years, um, and it has been fascinating to watch his life evolve. At one point, um, he, um, he told me about this thing that happened, that they broke into the secret police headquarters and sent everyone their Stasi files. And his contained everything he had ever done on his birthday for his whole life, a copy of every single letter we had written to each other, including some that never made it through, and exact details of every single meeting we had. I still feel like I want to vomit when I think about how much the wall reached into every single part of their lives. But for both of us, the wall coming down changed everything. For Michael, it meant that he then 
started his own business, and he has had this great life where he's traveled all over the world. And for me, no one could ever tell me again that change wasn't possible or that it couldn't happen unexpectedly fast. I often wonder what impossible thing is going to happen five months from now. You know, the political structures that we think are as solid as concrete can literally be smashed under our hands. In 1993, I was again a student in a foreign land. This time, I was studying orangutans in Indonesian Borneo. And I saw the forest disappearing around me. And I heard the stories about how the reason that they were logging was because they were paying, they needed the money to pay for health care. But I remembered my experience in Berlin. And I knew that change was possible. If enough people wanted it, and you attacked the problem from enough different directions. So I founded a nonprofit called Health in Harmony, and together with thousands of people, we have had the joy over the last 10 years to watch the number of illegal loggers go from about 1,350 logging households down to just 180 individuals now. And at the same time, health and wealth have dramatically improved. We reached through and grabbed those loggers and discovered that they were the same as us, trapped in an impossible situation and wanting out. So it has been a joy to be part of that bright spot in the world. But in the bigger picture, I often wonder whether or not we are going to survive as a human species. Are we actually going to do something about the fact that a healthy planet is absolutely necessary for human life and for the life of all the amazing biodiversity we share this planet with. Can we break down the barricades that divide us and find a way to create a sustainable future together? I believe we can. And I want us all to dance and drink champagne on the crumbling edifice of that wall as well. Thank you. That was Kennery Webb. Kennery graduated from Yale University School of Medicine with honors and then completed her residency in family medicine at Contra Costa Regional Medical Center in Martinez, California. In 2005, she founded Health in Harmony to support the combined human and environmental work that she planned in Indonesia. And after a year of traveling around Indonesia looking for the best site for this program, she helped co-found the Alam Sahat Lestari program in West Kalimantan. If you enjoyed today's story or are a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb the rankings, and that helps new listeners find the podcast, and we really want to share these stories with as many people around the world as we can. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Erin Barger, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. 
The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by us, Liz Neely and Aaron Barker. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Earth Optimism Summit and the Motor Co. Music Hall for hosting these shows, as well as our partners at NC State and Duke, and to all the scientist moms out there, whether they bake brownies or not. Don't forget to join us this Tuesday at Caveat in New York. Thanks for listening.